Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. I love that. So good. Uh, thank you. I'm, um, I love that, that uh, you know, Tyler just to be able to share a story and what we see is that people come in here and you know that when people walk in or encounter the church, uh, they have perceptions, they have expectations, they have things that they're expecting, uh, ways which you're expecting to be treated. A lot of people come in, uh, they expect not to belong, they expect not to be accepted, they expect a lot of different ex- you know, uh, experiences that people have um, with the church. And what, what I love about that, and I think this has been true of you know, how we've been, and one of the things I love about Port City is when people walk in, they encounter something starkly different. And what I want for us to do is we're wrapping the series up called Welcome Home is to really push on this and think about how it is that the world encounters us. And we can't address what's happening. You know, we're talking about local and personal, right where we are, right where we have influence, right where God has granted us the capacity to bring uh, sort of the force of his love on the world around us by the way in which we do that for the people that are around us. This isn't sort of an ethereal idea, but rather something that's really tactical and really practical. And so I want us to talk about this um, today. Uh, the reality is, and maybe I'll ask, begin by asking a question, you know, you, you know that the culture that we live in and the, and the pace of life, the title of today's message is the rhythm of the family, that every family has a rhythm. Uh, you come in here and we talk about you know, Port City being a home and, and sort of your family and our family, there's a rhythm to it. And it's like, okay, it's every Sunday or it's a small group on Thursday or whatever your particular deal is. For some of you uh, who aren't here today, it's like Christmas and Easter, right? And for others, so there's all kinds of rhythms that we have about how we participate in whatever it is. When we think about specifically the rhythm of the family, uh, most of us don't think about, you know, a lot of free time at night sitting around eating dinner together. We think about the frenetic pace with which we run 24-7, that it's just more and more and more, more games, more sports, more homework, more of this. It's just, it's just a crazy sort of pace that we adopt into our world. And whether you're a you know, parent or a husband or wife or whether you're single, whatever you are, you have a pace and a rhythm at which you operate and which you run. And so the question would be this, what is happening to you? What is happening to you because of the way in which your life is currently happening? What is happening in you because of the pace of your life, because of the rhythm of your life, because of the way that your life is arranged either by your own doing or arranged by everybody else's doing? And the reality is, this is exactly what I think we're talking about, or Paul was talking about when he says, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. It isn't just that we aren't supposed to Uh, sort of fall into the way in which the world sort of thinks is right or wrong. That's a part of it, but it's the patterns of the world that shape us, inform us, and keep us from actually experiencing the life for which we have been made. So I want to sort of think about this in that way. I'm going to kind of walk you through a journey, and here's the fun part about this. You know, my learning curve over the last five, six, probably last decade has been incredibly steep. There were questions that I was afraid to ask, questions that I didn't know I was allowed to ask, 
There were issues that I have long believed. I was raised in a particular way, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's just the way I was raised. And there were perceptions and things that I brought in. There were things that I were taught that weren't helpful, uh, and some of those things weren't even correct. And so to wrestle and press through issues is very terrifying. It's very terrifying. You know, I've kind of joked with you guys. I thought I had my theological box built at the age of 35, and then I would just pull the hammers out and play theological whack-a-mole with every issue that came up, and I could, you know, slice and dice anyone who disagreed with me. Instead, God had other plans. He began to unfold more and more and more about him, depths and layers to the gospel that went far beyond just what happens to you when you die, but really what it means for us to live in the way of Jesus here and now. And the implications were massive. It's changed the way I've read the scriptures. And this doesn't make them less. It doesn't make them less. It makes them more. I read them far more intimately. In fact, what, what God is doing in me as I participate and listen and sense and study is profoundly shaping who I am and awakening what I'm seeing about God in ways that are fresh and exciting and compelling. And so that's what I want for our church. And what I will tell you is that process is challenging and it is maddening. There are times when I wrestle with things that, that just bother me to the core. You know what the good news in that is? If something bothers me to the core, guess what I get to do? I get to make it bother you to the core as well. So that's what we're gonna do today, all right? There's plenty for us. We're just gonna all be mad together. Can we do that? Because, the, because what's at stake What's at stake is incredibly important for how we understand what the church is to be. If, this is gonna, if, if the church really is the hope of the world, if God has really given us the keys to the kingdom like we talked about last week, then what we believe and understand and know about this thing that we participate in is really, really important. So I want to try to do that um, today. I want to talk about a pattern, a simple pattern that we're all gonna need if we're gonna learn how to do this and then learn how to bring this to the world, that we are all formed by something. And it's not just your schedules, it's your way of thinking. All these things form us and shape us. All these things create frames and perspectives that either allow us to learn new things or prevent us from seeing things differently. All these things are always shaping us. And my sort of fundamental tenet is that the normal natural pace of your life is not likely to lead you into the formative patterns that you actually want or long for. Most of the patterns that happen in your life are not gonna cause you to become more loving and more caring and more full and more free. Most of them are gonna cause us to be more divided. They're gonna cause us to be more angry. They're gonna cause us to be more distrustful. Gonna, all those things are gonna be sort of the normal, natural pace in which we are talking about. And what God has done, what Jesus has invited us into, is to be reconciled into a relationship with the Father. And the rhythms of relationship operates very differently from the rhythms of efficiency, which most of us value more than anything else. We arrange our lives to get things done and to be efficient, and our relationships sort of operate to serve that end. And, we, and a lot of us live like this. Like you have arrangements in your home. You do this, I do that. You want to make things more efficient then you realize that the things that we really want in a relationship sort of defy those rules, and there are different rhythms about this. And we've looked at this over the last couple of weeks. We started this out, and this is the fifth week of a series. So if you haven't been, uh, haven't heard, there's gonna be some, there's some background behind this. But essentially, we started, we said that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And all these things were made to declare his glory, to bear his image, to demonstrate who he was. In the beginning, we lived life with God fully and freely. God's will was done on earth as it is in heaven without restraint, without resistance, because it was the way in which we had been created to live. And in fact, we did live until sin entered the world. And then we were separated from that rule of life, from that way of life. We were eternally and hopelessly separated. And so we ended up living sort of in this space we've been calling the world, separated from God. And so what God did, and I love the way John actually recounts, we're gonna look in John chapter 17, another one of my favorite passages that I've not liked for a very long time, and I'm learning to like it. It's Jesus' prayer for us. The reason I don't like it is because it challenges me in places that I don't wanna be challenged. And just because we can do this, if it challenges me, guess what? It's gonna challenge you too, all right? So here we go. John begins his gospel like this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. This is how John begins his gospel talking about Jesus. And he says that that Jesus, this Word, came into his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who would receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And with this right, became, we were given the, the rights and the responsibilities to live as his people. Remember, this is the way in which you get into this. For you were once, we've looked at this from 1 Peter chapter 2. Once you were not a people because you had not received mercy, and now you are a people. Why? Because of what you have received from him. We have been remade and reborn into his image. We looked at this over the last couple weeks. I want to sort of show you this thing, and this is just by way of review. We've looked at Matthew chapter 16 which is this sort of really uh, well-known passage where Jesus is sort of doing a lay of the land, like what do people say that I am? And some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah. Then he turns and he asks them very point. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What do you say? What do you think about this? And Simon Peter answers in verse 16. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied back to him and he says, blessed are you. Like you, you got it, Simon. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you. And you under, I would underline that word. Then I take my pen and I underline, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. I would also circle the word Father. Jesus is very specific about this. This was not revealed to you by what you thought, by what you sort of rationalized, by what you researched and Googled and came back, but rather this was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that this is the rock, that you are now the rock. And upon this rock, this foundation, I will build my church or my ecclesia. It's the, the, we have this idea of the church is like this thing that's structured and programs. That's not at all how Jesus saw this. He said, I will build my church. I will build this grouping of called out ones. People who are pulled out and given a charge and an identity and a way of life and they'll gather and they will participate with one another. It was an assembly, a called out assembly. It was specific in its nature and it was community and its essence. It was us. It was plural. And so I'm going to build my church. And then he says that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it or shall not overcome it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And we looked at this last week. The fact that these keys were given to us in order to unlock the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades are the places that keep people held captive by the ways of the world, the patterns of the world, the things that keep us separated and isolated and afraid and hopeless. 
And he says that the force of this movement of God's people isn't resisted by those gates, by those places. And that was my interpretation from last week. Again, you can go back and listen to that. But by way of review, I want to remind you of a couple of things. Number one is the foundation of this movement is a confession. It's that we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a tall statement. This is who do you say that he is? This isn't what we say or what my church believes. This is what does Mike believe? What do you believe? What do you say? It's a confession. That's the foundation. Without that, we don't have anything to rest on or to stand on. And what happens in this, the confession, is that we are saved, we are forgiven, and in that we are reconciled to the Father. We are brought back into the relationship for which we have been made, and we move and we operate at the rhythm of that relationship. And this is where a lot of us have to really switch and shift our thinking. Um, What I do when I read a verse like this, I start underlining and marking stuff up, and then I pull out my journal, imagine that, and I start writing stuff down. And a couple of things that I observe just from this is that the way in which we know this about God is by revelation. It's not purely logic. Now, am I for like apologetics and research and history? Of course I am. But you're not gonna logically fall into this. It's revelation. You're not gonna just, it's the way in which we learn. And the read, we're gonna do a whole series on this coming up. But the reason is because it's every relationship you have is the only way you know a person is by what has been revealed to you from them over time. Right? When you start a friendship, you don't know everything about that person, but you discover like, hey, the more you know this person, the more you like them or the more you don't like them because it's revealed to you. You see and observe things over time. It's the way in which we know anything about anybody. It's the way of relationships. So the way of knowing is, rela- is revelation. It's always like that. And the second observation is that this, the way in which relationships occur is by remaining in them. You don't sit back and observe them and then decide if you're gonna participate or not. You have to participate in it to determine and see what it is. That makes sense, right? A lot of us don't do this. We sit back and we're waiting for something to happen and then we decide if we're gonna participate and that's not a relationship. A relationship requires you to remain in it. I'm using this term very intentionally because this is exactly what Jesus says. I am the vine and you are the branches. There's a source to this relationship that we have. If a person remains in me, I will remain in them. And then they will produce and then they will be, become who it is and what it is that I have created them to become. That's the picture, in, again, in John's gospel. And this is really important because what this is, this is a posture in which we live responsive to him, attentive to his voice. Now, almost all of us would nod our head and say, yes, we get that and we believe that and we think that those of you who uh, believe in Jesus and are followers of his, you would say yes, but, but there is something else at play. Too many of us, myself included, are more likely to be shaped and formed by the patterns of this world than we are in being transformed and renewed by the way of life under the rule of God's love. Even our religion and our church experience is largely, especially in the modern West, is largely shaped by the patterns of this world. I wanna show you that today. And this is where we're all gonna get mad together. 
But this is so important. This is so important. I was, um, I, I, I've been reading a lot and, and pretty, uh, I, I make a habit of reading people whom um, I disagree with. Uh, and it's largely uh, an exercise in self-control. And I've shared this before, but usually if you read something that you don't agree with, your first response is to throw it uh, at something. Uh, and what I've realized is rather than that's the level in which that person is wrong, I have come to realize that is more a measure of my readiness to understand. So I try to take that very personally and, and process things. Um, now, because of that, I've learned to read widely and the things that I've seen and the other people whom I've found just a real synergy in the way uh, they think and their heartbeats, uh, men and women, black and white, a variety of people that have just awakened my heart to things that I've long suspected or hoped and then to see them and to be walked through them. And I'm very fortunate because um, of my daughter is one of whom provides me with these books. Uh, she's 25 and it's always interesting when you raise your kids to think for themselves, guess what happens? They like think for themselves. And so we have the most fascinating conversations about all these things. And she gave me a book a couple weeks ago, which I highly recommend, called The Geography of Grace. And it's a beautiful picture of what the way of Jesus looks like in this modern world with its modern um, crises. And sort of the theological or the way in which God is in this. It's, it's beautifully written. But in there, there's a couple of quotes I wanna read to you. One is an observation, it's at the heading of a chapter and it's by Archbishop William Temple, and he says this, that the church is the only society in the world which exists for those who are not members of it. We are the only society in the world that doesn't exist for ourselves, but we exist for the world that does not yet know or believe or trust. That is an incredible thing that we've been entrusted with. For God so loved the world that he gave. And the posture of those who follow him, if we develop his heart, should perhaps be the same, that we would so love the world that we would what? We would offer ourselves. And again, this is not how Mike normally thinks at all. I like my will and my way um, I want for everybody to be unified, but here's the kicker. I want everybody to be unified around the things that I think are important and the issues that I think matter. Anybody with me on that? And Jesus says, uh-uh. You're gonna be unified on something that is far more foundational and is far more pervasive than your issue-based way of thinking could ever be. And in this, what we need, and this is what I'm advocating for, we need a, a renewed vision and a renewed imagination for what the church is to be in this world. The opportunity that we've been given in this particular culture is, is to me, unbelievable. It's why I am as hopeful as I've ever been about the way in which God is leading us and the opportunities that are in front of us. The problem is the church has long sort of bought into this idea, especially the church that I grew up in, and maybe this is true of you, 
but it, was, it became a way for the United States of America particularly to succeed. If we just get this law passed and stop this issue from happening and do this and do that, then the world will become, or America will become the city on a hill. It will become the kingdom of God sort of enfleshed. And it's not. The world is fundamentally, the church is fundamentally different. It's, it's not a, a better version. It's a fundamentally different thing that you and I have been invited into. That on earth as it is in heaven exists in this place as we submit and yield and hear his voice. We're going to see this in just a moment. And what happened in that is what, what I began to believe is that if I could just live at a superior level of morality and then sort of project that morality, about the more moral we became, the more closely I believed we were to the image we've been created to bear. And realize that's not at all. That's not the keys to the kingdom. That's actually fruit of the law that has been abolished or has been fulfilled and has been replaced by a new covenant. This old, old way has been replaced. And so what uh, the authors, uh, ironically enough, Chris Rock, who's not the comedian Chris Rock, another Chris Rock, uh, and Joel Van Dyke of the book is called The Geography of Grace. They write this, Christians are not primarily called to some kind of superior, superior moral code. Instead, we are invited into a radically fresh way of relating to each other and with God. A way of relating that became Jesus' fervent prayer in John 17, a way of relating, related, relating that is grounded in the abundance of God's love. That's what we're invited into. Now, please, let me make a disclaimer here. I want to make several of these. Do I believe that we should be great citizens of the United States of America. Yes, I do. We live in arguably the, the safest, the, the, you know, with the most opportunities of any country in the world, and, and I am profoundly grateful for that. I'm profoundly grateful for the men and women who have sacrificed in, in all the different ways for all of America, for all of its, its good and its bad. We are very fortunate and should treat this opportunity as such. All I'm saying is that that is not the kingdom. We have a different way of life that we're called to live in. We cannot afford being pulled into the patterns of this world. Here's how Jesus prayed for us. He said, I pray that my people will be one so that the world will see and know that God's love for them. I pray that we would come together in this place and reflect God's love in such a way that the entire world would know that God loves them as well. They would know that we are followers of Jesus by the way in which we love other people, by the way in which God's love is given, that why it pushes against the force that keeps people trapped. It pushes against the gates that keeps people trapped and separated. And so Jesus would pray for us. God, let us be one as you and I are one. It was this really intimate prayer in John 17. And then he says this in verse 15. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, not that they withdraw and pull away and escape the world, but rather that you would protect them from the evil one. You're gonna be left in a hostile place, but he's praying for our protection. And then he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. 
And a lot of us have taken that to sort of mean that this sort of smuggling, we're not out of the world. We don't deal with that lowly stuff. And that's not how Jesus operated in the world. Christians have used this to say, well, I know I'm supposed to love them, but I don't have to like them. That's not it at all. It's that somehow we've got to have our hearts so shaped. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. He says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So here's what he asks. Sanctify them by the truth. It's a big word, sanctify. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. It means set them apart. Call them out. Make them holy. Form them and forge them and shape them. And then the next line says, your word is truth. And what we, what we have been sort of you know, taught to, the picture that we've been sort of left in our head is that the way in which Jesus sanctifies us in truth is by us reading this book. And please hear me very carefully. You should read your Bibles. You should study the scriptures. You should mine them. But what a lot of us think is that we just pull a verse out of here and then we overlay it or use it to prove our point. And that is exactly what Jesus is not talking about. In fact, when I think about this, when I think about what does it mean when he says your word is truth, it doesn't just mean a Bible study. It's what God has to say. Think about this. I want to go back. The way of relationship is that we remain. We are we responsive to him and his voice. What a lot, and, and you know this is true. You know there are people who have pulled verses out of the Bible and used them in ways that you know that is not what God has to say. Is that true? You know this. Google can help you find a verse. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is for us to let what God says to us, to me, to you, and to us together, what he says to us to be so pervasive and formative and shaping that it actually changes who we are and how we live in this world. That's the posture. To, to be sanctified by the word is not to just get a nugget to help you wrestle an issue. It's to get the very heart of God for the people who struggle with those issues and how we work you know, in the most detailed and wise and shrewdest of ways in this world to redeem and to be a redemptive agent for what God has caused or called things to be. That takes incredible work. It takes incredible work. This is what we're being asked of. He says, sanctify them. That's Jesus' prayer. This is why I don't like this, right? Remember, we talked about this. Sanctify them in truth. Then he says this, as you have sent me into the world, I'm sending them as well. For them, I have set myself apart so that they too may also live in the exact same manner. That's my paraphrase. But you see, this is exactly what Jesus is praying for. He goes on and he says, or before when he opens this prayer up, he says, God, I've revealed you to those. I've revealed you to those whom you have given to me out of this world. And when I think about this, like we, it is Jesus who reveals the Father. We have a relationship, we've been a reconciled relationship with the Father, and when we want to see the Father, we look at Jesus. We look at him. He is the clearest representation of, of who God is. And he has called us out into another pattern of living here in this world. And so here's what I think is interesting. What we've been called to be in this world is to be distinct. 
Now, when I say distinct, I don't mean weird. A lot of Christians have taken that to whole new levels, right? To be distinct. You know some weird Christians? Yeah? Okay, if you don't, it's probably, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, because the thing is, we, we, we do this. We get these ideas, we, we overlay, you know, because we're, we're so easily formed and shaped by the patterns of this world that we sort of bring God into our side. And this has been happening. This is not new to the modern West. It's been happening really since the movement of Jesus began. But what you begin to realize, and this is what I, there's, there's been three or four different books I've read that have cited a book by the, name of, uh, by the name of The Destruction of the Gods that was written by Larry Hurtado. And there's been several different places, again, doing a lot of research and trying to discover what made God's people so distinct in the first three centuries of its existence. Because you know what happened in 300, right? It became sort of the official religion of Rome. And that sort of set off this new way where the way the church would be advanced is you know, sort of onward Christian soldiers marching us to war with the cross of Jesus, cutting everybody who dis- disagree with them. And that was my, again, my paraphrase of that, but that's basically how the song goes. And so there was this idea, and it, it occurred when, when sort of the church and the state became the same. I know, we're gonna get there. So the first 300 years, the church was marginalized, it was overlooked, it was kept at bay, and when it couldn't be kept at bay, the government powers, the emperors of Rome specifically, unleashed, and the rulers in the church unleashed persecution to arrest and to kill and to crucify followers of Jesus in the first three centuries. And people ask, why in the world would anybody join that madness? Why would you show up for that? And they began to talk about it and identify that the reason was there was such a distinctness in the way the people who were followers was known as the followers of the way and the way the followers of Jesus lived. It's interesting to me that we use the term Christian now to sort of check a box and they ask you what religion you are and you say, I'm a Christian. That's not how the term got to be. In fact, if you look in uh, the book of Acts, Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. And the reason is because people looked at them and said, those people live like the way of Jesus and they called them little Christs. I heard Eric Manna say one time, you should never call yourself a Christian until someone who is not calls you one first. That someone look at you and see so much of the way of Jesus in your life as that person is like a little Christ. That's how the movement began. And they noticed, they've identified, and this is uh, pretty common, they've identified five specific distinctives uh, that marked the people who were followers of Jesus from the rest of the culture in the first three centuries. Are you ready? Here's five things. I found this fascinating. Perhaps you won't. Uh, If so, my zeal for this Uh, will hopefully make up for this, all right? Here we go. Number one, the first thing, because the movement actually spread. It just, it went crazy under the persecution. They've identified five areas, five distinct areas. The first, uh, back in the first century, uh, abortion wasn't done the way it is today. Uh, They didn't have all the technology and such, so what they would do is essentially, uh, it was infanticide or various forms of this, Basically, once the baby was born, they, they called it exposure. They would put them outside the city gates or in the dump. And that's how they sort of did the abortion thing. And so the observers, and say, what made, people, what made the followers of Jesus distinct? They used the phrase, they believed in the sanctity of life. Now, this sounds familiar to some of you. Because what the Christians would do, the people who were followers of the way, they would go to these places and they, they, they valued the dignity of these, these infants, 
And so they would uh, bring them in and rescue them from the dumps and rescue them from outside the city. And they created what is known to be the first orphanages. And so they said these first followers of Jesus, one of the distinctives was that they valued a sanctity of life. It's an important thing. Second, they had a very countercultural sexual ethic. Very countercultural. In the first century, and these really before that, uh, women had a standard for sexual behavior. Um, they were to be virgins when they got married, and they were to remain monogamous during marriage. And if you divorced, you were pretty much done because you were seen as property, and it was just a, it was just a mess. And so this went on, and, but the men had a different standard. Uh, the men were actually encouraged uh, to have concubines. And if you go back, even if you look in your Bibles, in the Old Covenant, you'll see David and Solomon and Abraham, they all had concubines. They had children with, with, their, with their slaves. It was just a, so it was just sort of a free-for-all or however it would have been viewed. And all of a sudden, these followers of Jesus said, there's something else to this. There's sort of a sacredness to sex. And not only that, there's a dignity to women that needs to be protected and needs to be valued as we sort of look to see how it is that we're gonna act. And they began to sort of say, we're gonna hold ourselves to the same standard. That's really where they believe sort of the emergence of a man and a woman remaining faithful within marriage. So you have sort of this countercultural sexual a revolution or a sexual ethic. So you kind of have over here, you have sanctity of life and what we call today traditional values. Some of you are like, yes, you're all fired up. Then it says that these followers of Jesus, when they gathered, they were radically inclusive. They were rich and poor, different races, races who were ostracized. They were brought in, welcomed as equals. Men and women, the dignity of women in that culture. So there was this radical inclusion. So now people on the other side are like, yes, right? You see where this is going. The fourth one. The fourth one, fourth one is that they were deliberately concerned about marginalized people groups. People who were oppressed and struggled and didn't have uh, equality. So you might sort of put that in the social justice category. And if you're sort of playing along and following along, you can see exactly what has happened. The Christian right for a long time, or really what happens is the system of the world has taken, and they have said these first two values sort of belong on the right-hand side of the column, the conservative side of the column. I remember growing up in a conservative church and hearing people talk about social justice and saying, oh, they're liberal, and labeling them as a liberal because they cared about someone who was marginalized. To recognize that's what Jesus does. The, the Christian left has sort of taken and adopted these two over here. And let me tell you what's gonna happen in the future because now it's, the pendulum's kind of swung this way. You're gonna hear these two issues. There, there's gonna be all kinds of chaos around them all the time. You're gonna hear these two issues. These are gonna emerge in the same way that these two issues emerged in the Christian church for the last 40 or 50 years. It's gonna do the same thing over here. And the reason is because both of them keep getting pulled into the patterns of the world to usher in the kingdom of God. And the thing that makes us distinct is all four of them. There is no division. We have a way in which we are called to live and things that we are called to care about. By the way, you know what the fifth one is? That the followers of Jesus were radically nonviolent and non-retaliatory. No one's picked that one up, have they? 
I know this is incredibly complex. We have military and law enforcement officers, and make no mistake about it, it is an act of love to preserve peace. I believe that. I, stru- I mean, I, I get all that. All I'm saying is these five things were noted as what made the people of God distinct. What we need is rhythms that help us to acclimate, to enter into this is not, this is not about picking an issue, finding a verse, and then figure out what we believe about the issue. This is about us wrestling together what kind of church we believe God is calling us to be. That we are sanctified by the truth and his truth is his word. What he has to say to us here in this age with all of the complexities and all of the tensions and all the difficulties. How do we value the things that Jesus values in a way that's redemptive? It's not gonna happen because you read a book. It's not gonna happen because you listen to a podcast. It's gonna be happen because we get on our faces and we ask and we seek, and we knock, and we wrestle. So here's the rhythm. This is what I'm learning. We live here, and I don't know about you, I'm pulled into the patterns of the world all the time. Anybody else? It's like every Monday I get up, actually I'm off Monday, so it's not that big of a deal, but Tuesday when I start dealing with people again, you're pulled the ways of the world, because people, they do that to you. All the things that you feel, I feel. And what I have to do is I have to retreat. I have to retreat. And sometimes I do this on a uh, 10 minutes at a time in the morning. This is my personal quiet time. I get out of the way. Sometimes I have to do this in the middle of a conversation. I'm like having a conversation with someone and they push a button and I want to throat punch them. And then I have to say, you're right. You you ever have that happen? Just me? And you're like, you you can feel it. You have to, you have to reorient yourself. You have to, to pull away to get God's heart, to reorient myself to the way of Jesus, to hear him and let him sanctify me in a moment, to hear his voice and be willing to listen to his voice and to trust his voice. You have to pull away. Sometimes this is personal. It's you alone with God on your face. Other times it's with people that you trust and love. And you're sharing these experiences together and you're wrestling with things together. And sometimes you're actually experiencing things together. And it is imperfect. The thing that I've learned, it is imperfect. It is imperfect and it is messy and it is laden with risk. We have to be willing to sort of pull away and say, Jesus, help us to live in such a way that your kingdom becomes more normal and less foreign. Because Lord knows what is normal to us really probably isn't super helpful to what you're trying to accomplish through us. We have to reorient ourselves And it would be nice to stay here, right? But he sends us back into the world to bring something better. By the five o'clock service, I usually get a little uh, looser. And last week I said this, and I'll tell you all this. We retreat, we reorient, we re-enter. We retreat, we reorient, we re-enter to bring something better. Here's the beautiful thing. 
Today, the bar is so low. It doesn't take that much to bring something better, does it? This is like available to all of us. But this, this, is what the, this is what we are supposed to do. He sends us back. Sanctified, set apart, formed for the redemption. We exist for the people who are not yet a part of this way of Jesus. The gospel, the power of the gospel and the effectiveness of the church, of our church, is not that we serve as a solution to the world's problems or even a better version of it. But rather we serve, you and I serve, to be a faithful witness to our experience with God and the reality of a fundamental different way of life right in the middle of the world and its problems. That's what we get to do. On earth as it is in heaven, right, isn't gonna happen because we get the system of the world to operate correctly. But on earth as it is in heaven occurs in us. It occurs in us in this space where we come together collectively and in communities around and spread out as we gather as his people and we are more fully formed into the image in which we have been created to be. That's how it gets done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he sends us back. King Jesus sends us back to bear the beauty of his image and the force of his love. That the gates that hold people captive simply cannot resist. That is what we have been charged with. As we close, I'm gonna invite the bands to come out in, in our locations. And I want us to close, and I want you to just allow this to serve as sort of an invitation and a declaration as we um, close this serve, as we close this series. I want you to sort of hear the lines and to sort of feel the, the call, the prayer, for a people to come together for the walls that so easily split and divide to be destroyed because that's what Jesus has done. He has destroyed the barrier that separates us and he is creating a new humanity, a new people because of what we have received. And that we would just ask and say, God, when you fling wide the gates of heaven, this is not about us going to where you are, but this is about you coming to where we are to listen and to hear and to be responsive to you, that you might use us in your grace to bring something better to the world that desperately needs it. So as Kaylee and Abby lead us, why don't you guys stand as we close our series together?